Well, we're continuing a, a series, summer series that's taking us through the Ten Commandments. It's called the Ten Words, as you can see on the screen. And we're up to the ninth word today, the ninth commandment. So on the home stretch, next week we conclude the series. Uh, just FYI, the series following that will be a series taking us through First Peter, uh, a series called Against the Tide. First Peter is a great book that talks about Christians living counterculturally uh, in, a, in a challenging world. So apropos, right, for a, a time such as this, I think we'll get a lot out of that. But, but today, the ninth word, and then we'll read a little bit uh, uh, from uh, the Gospel of Matthew, something that Jesus said about the commandments as well. So uh, listen to God's word. Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. The ninth word, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. And then flipping to Matthew 19, uh, starting at verse 16. Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? He inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. Indeed, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I, I can't remember the year, but it's, it's over 10 years ago now uh, that two kind of social science researchers, James Patterson and uh, Peter Kim, uh, did kind of a mass survey of morality in the United States. They wrote a book called The Day America Told the Truth. Uh, here's how it's billed. The first mass survey on mass morality ever conducted, an unprecedented portrait of the American people by the American people, Using state-of-the-art research techniques, Patterson and Kim went way beyond superficial five-minute polls to conduct the largest survey of private morals ever undertaken in any country. I want to say it was 2010-ish, something like that. And after this largest survey of private morals ever undertaken, here's what the authors concluded about the moral center of Americans. There is, quote, absolutely no moral consensus at all. Everyone is making up their own personal moral codes, their own Ten Commandments. And they go on to list what they termed the Ten Real Commandments based on the outcome of this, this mass research study, a few principles by which many Americans seem to live. Here's one. I will steal from those who won't really miss it. I will procrastinate at work and do almost nothing about one full day in every five. I will lie when it suits me, so long as it doesn't cause any real damage. I, I was, you know, a latecomer to the Christian faith. I was a senior in college when I came to this. So I, I kind of heard initially the ninth commandment as do not lie. You know, don't give false testimony against your neighbor. I kind of got the, the quick summary version, don't lie. It's actually much bigger than that and actually a little bit different than that. But it certainly does include... Uh, the telling of lies. So that, that third principle of life for most Americans, I will lie when it suits me so long as it doesn't cause any real damage, really grates with 
the, the command, right? The ninth word. So there's a very real question here. Uh, which is the better way? The way by which many in our country uh, have committed to or the way of the ninth word which God gave to Moses? John Calvin said that to understand what the ten words really mean for us, we, we must ask, why did God give this commandment? You know, the Bible portrays God as a God of life and we kind of prayed that way this morning. God created life, sustains life, sent Jesus to redeem life, grants eternal life, holds all life together right now, gave us new life in the Holy Spirit, right? God is a God of life. So we have to ask, where's the life in this commandment? And certainly God gave the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words to Moses, we know that, and he, God revealed them to us. But I hope as we've been moving through these, we've sensed that the Ten Words also reveal something about God, as they should, about who God is and, and what God is concerned about. And in them, I hope that we're seeing uh, God's goodness and, and concern for us. I mean, these definitely are not the ten killjoy downers. List, just the list of ten things you shouldn't do simply because you shouldn't. Right? There, there's much more to this. They show us the way of greatest life and that they show us how we might live with God in gratitude by the power of the Holy Spirit. I, one commentator I love, Dallas Willard, described the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus' description of the kingdom kind of life that is possible for us now because the Holy Spirit dwells within us. Not because we're going to try harder or strive with greater strength in our spiritual life, but because we're going to submit more to God, live in fellowship with God, and allow the Holy Spirit to guide us. So in a way, the nine words show us that kingdom kind of life that's possible on this side of the cross and, and with the presence of the Holy Spirit within they reveal the trajectory of everything God is up to in, in the world. Uh, redemption, renewal, restoration, new life. Right? This is what God is doing. So we, we read what Jesus said to the rich young ruler who came to him and asked, hey, which commands do I have to keep to enter life? Here's, here's what Jesus said. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. You know, as we've been talking about the Ten Commandments, I, I think we've mentioned several times that as commentators have looked at these and as we look at them, they tend to fall into two categories, two tables, some people call them. The, the first uh, category being our relationship with God, kind of our vertical relationship, and the second category being our relationship with other people. And, and notice when that rich young ruler asked Jesus, how can I enter life he did not point to the commands uh, that have to do with our vertical relationship with God. He pointed to the commands that have to do with our relationship with one another. Very interesting, right? What must I do to enter life? Jesus said, if you want to enter life, keep these commands. The one anothering commands. The, you know, there, there are a bunch of those in the New Testament. Paul uses them. Uh, honor one another, build one another up, all, all this kind of thing. So today we ask, we need to ask, where's the life in the ninth word? Where's the life? You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. So, so to get to that, the where's the life question, I think we'll, we'll do what has been our pattern. We'll look at what the command kind of prohibits and then what the command uh, tells us to do in a positive sense. Like what not to do and then what to do to live out the fullness of this. So first, what to avoid, what the command prohibits. You shall not give false testimony. 
So we hear the word testimony and immediately kind of a courtroom scene comes to mind, right? Like law and order, some kind of legal proceeding, some questioning, maybe a deposition or something like that. And, and technically that's right because uh, in a strict sense, what this command forbids directly is telling a lie in court or in a legal proceeding against your neighbor when, when an issue has come up. Now, the reason this is important is because of the context back in that day. Justice in the ancient world was far from justice as we would understand it to be in our country today. Uh, there, there was very little protection for the accused. It wasn't you know, innocent until proven guilty. In fact, it, tend to, it tended to flip-flop and be just the other way, guilty until proven innocent. If you were accused of something, even by a single witness, you were left in the place of needing to prove that you didn't do it or, or, or didn't do whatever the person claimed you, you had done. There were few, if any, standards uh, for the presentation of evidence. People could just make stuff up and bring it in. So it was a kind of Wild West uh, approach in the ancient world. But not so for God's people. And this is one of the beautiful things that we see in, in the trajectory of the Bible. We see redemptive movement to, to the cultural moment. So, so if ancient justice was, hey, every, every person for themselves, you can make an accusation and hey, you, can you prove that you're not guilty? If that was the standard there, then we see God redeeming humanity by taking us to a new place and saying, look, hey, having one witness isn't probably good enough because you know, human nature being what it is, you should probably have more than one person saying that the person did it. So look at Deuteronomy. One witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So this, this ninth word is barking up that tree, right? It's saying, be, be truthful. Don't falsely accuse your neighbor. Don't give false witness against your neighbor. And there, there are twin concerns here. I mean, the justice concern is, is rather obvious, right? Like, because when you give false testimony, uh, something bad might happen to the person that is very unjust. But there's also the idea of reputation and, and standing in the community. You know, when a person is falsely accused, they're injured. Their, their reputation, their, their good name is injured. Even if they don't end up going to jail or paying a fine, or even if they end up being found completely not guilty, I mean, you, you've seen these cases, right? It's when there's an accusation and someone's name makes it to the evening news or the national news and it's plastered all over everything and the, the trial hasn't even happened yet, right? Um, I, I remember the first time in my young adult life when this landed on me. So I graduated from college in 1992 and in 1996, uh, the Olympics were in Atlanta. Some, some will remember this. Of course, some won't because I'm getting older. Um, but there was a bombing at the 1996 Olympics. And it was quite a, quite a thing. And there was a, a security guard named Richard Jewell who actually found some of these pipe bombs that had been put together. And he, and he reported it to the police. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, it turned out he, he probably saved many lives. But at the beginning... He was culprit number one because he was the one who called it in and reported it. For almost 90 days, for almost three months, this poor guy's name was dragged through the mud in the national media. The whole country hated him. Couldn't think there, there could be a worse person than Richard Jewell. How dare he bomb the Olympics? Come on. Turns out he didn't. All he did was act as a noble, courageous person and report this thing says the Bible. 
A good name is more desirable than riches. To be esteemed is better than silver or gold. Or the way Martin Luther put it, reputation is something quickly stolen but not quickly returned. It can be gone like that. And in this short life, it might be gone forever in some communities, unjustly. So you see, each commandment that we've looked at stands for a whole category of things that that we're to avoid for the reason that it's bad for us, right? It's a dead-end pursuit. You You could take those commands, and if you, if you do what they recommend we don't do, command us not to do, and if you trace that to its logical conclusion, when you get to that end, the end of that road, you realize there's no life there. That, that's not taking you toward God. With, with that reasoning, the command, this command, the ninth word, prohibits not just lying in court or making up stories against your neighbor that, that harm them, uh, you, can, you can imagine those, right? Besides kind of a formal legal kind of t- context, we all have experienced words that have taken life. You know, somebody has twisted our words or said something that's patently not true uh, about us, and, and you've experienced that, right? There's a rabbinic saying that says, uh, slander kills three. The one who speaks it, the one who hears it, and the one about whom it is spoken. So very true. Words have power. Uh, that, that, that saying came from the Talmud, a, a collection of rabbinic sayings. It, the Talmud goes on to say that slander is equivalent to atheism in the sense that when we speak uh, untrue or, or words of another, when we speak poorly of another with intent of harming them, that is equivalent to acting as if you believe there is no God. Powerful. I read a story about an African village, what they did to combat gossip in their tribe. When a gossip was found out passing untruths about another person in in the tribe, they would take that person into one of the homes and the elders would go out into the village and scatter chicken feathers all over the place. And then they would tell the person, please go out and gather every single feather and bring it back to the house. You know, impossible, right? But the person got the point. Once you speak a word, it's out there. And all of the ramifications of it can't be reeled in. It's out there. Words are powerful. I, uh, again, I'm dating myself. I remember, do you remember this Dairy Queen uh, commercial? They they released this sandwich called the Flamethrower Sandwich. It was like a super spicy chicken sandwich. And there were, there were three people sitting around a table and they, they were talking, but they were inhaling as they were talking, like, why do we have to keep inhaling? <laughs> you know, <laughs> when we're talking, it sounded completely ridiculous. And then the guy said, because if we exhale, we'll, float, we'll throw flame. And one guy goes, what do you mean? <laughs> There's like flame thrower mouth coming out of the... And I was, I was kind of a newer Christian at that point. And I had read not long before that these verses from James. Look at these from James. The tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Just... (sighs) 
flamethrower mouth, right? And the Dairy Queen vision is just ridiculous. Um, but there's a spiritual reality. I mean, you've probably experienced this. I know I've been guilty of it. We've probably all been guilty of it. And we've experienced other people just setting stuff on fire with, with their words. See, as Christians, we believe that words are incredibly powerful. I, I work this into probably almost every wedding that I do. You know, in the beginning, God said, let there be light, and there was light. God spoke, and stuff came to be. Then in the first chapter of John's gospel, uh, in, a be- in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. God's best word to us is Jesus. When God wanted to speak life and grace and mercy and love and truth to us, he spoke Jesus. Right? And one of the ways that we've been created in God's image, I believe, is in our ability to speak words that create new realities, create new worlds. That's what a wedding is after all. Yeah, everybody gets dressed up and it's a fancy occasion and there's a big party and all that. But, but the point is for the community to gather to hear the couple speak words that create a new world. They stand there right before the vows, an engaged couple, and after the vows, they're a married couple. The words created a new world. And Christians believe that. I mean, the gift of speech is one of the ways we've been created in the image of God. Words are powerful. We can injure others with our words. The way we speak to others and about others makes all the difference. As words go, so goes the community. And they're powerful. I'll look at what the Heidelberg Catechism says about the ninth word. What is God's will for you in the ninth commandment? God's will is that I never give false testimony against anyone, twist no one's words, not gossip or slander, nor join in condemning anyone without a hearing or without a just cause. Rather, in court and everywhere else, I should avoid lying and deceit of every kind. These are devices the devil himself uses, and they would call down on me God's intense anger. I should love the truth, speak it candidly, and openly acknowledge it. And I should do what I can to guard and advance my neighbor's good name. I mean, there's the the positive side, the what to do, not just the what not to do, right? I should love the truth, speak it candidly, openly acknowledge it, and do whatever I can to guard and advance my neighbor's good name. You know, the opportunity of this command, the path of life in it, is the opposite of speech that tears down. It's the invitation to speech that blesses and builds others up, that honors their reputation in the community, and and encourages them, right? So what to pursue? In in his uh, first letter to the Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul has a big section about uh, reminding the Thessalonians what it is we believe as Christians. We believe that the day of the the Lord is coming very soon. Uh, He he, uh, tells us to put on faith and love and hope. And then he writes this, Christ died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him, living with Jesus in life and in death. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. His great conclusion, after laying down all of these profound truths of the faith, all these things are true. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. 
the first thing to do based on everything that we believe. Encourage one another and build one another up. Just as the courtroom is the place where we obey that which the command strictly prohibits, the church is the community where we practice and hopefully model a godly pattern of speech that's, that's life-giving. And in this day and time, uh, so countercultural and so needed to be able to speak in ways that, that give respect as we pursue truth, right? In the giving of this command, God was showing us the path of life and, and seeking to create a, a community where grace and truth are the norms, not the exceptions. We follow Jesus in that. He came full of grace and truth. As Christians, we follow Jesus. So for those of us who follow Jesus, any speech that is not gracious and truthful is abnormal, right? Something uh, where we should invite other believers to call us out on it if they, if they hear it from us, right? Something to be resisted, something to be corrected when words come out of us that are ungracious and, and untruthful. So certainly we avoid giving false witness against our neighbor. We speak positively. We build each other up. Uh, that gets to another way this command has been understood by the church throughout the centuries. Certainly we avoid lying, we speak well of others. And as followers of Jesus, we're called to speak truthfully about God to the world. Or as authors Hauerwas and Willimon put it, as Christians we lie to the world when we are ashamed to testify to that which Christ has made possible. Martin Luther wrote this about the ninth commandment. Uh, the one who keeps the ninth commandment will risk life and limb, property and reputation, friends and all that he has in order to speak rightly of God. Despite all the craziness in this world, and I don't know where you're at today, I don't know how you're feeling today. For me, it was kind of a hard week. It felt kind of like kind of a downer week. So I had to kind of do the personal work of, Lord, please help me in my faith because it's certainly easy to look around and think, where are you? What's going on? I, I don't know where you are this week. But we live in a world where a resurrection has happened. Nothing can change that. There's a gospel, and it's real. This isn't just a religion. This is historical claim, the foundation of the Christian faith. And if you haven't explored the claims for the resurrection, I very much encourage you to do so because that will solidify in your mind that this isn't just one option among the religious smorgasbord of world religions. The claims of Christianity are utterly unique because the historical claims are utterly unique. I mean, there's a gospel to be shared that is good news for you and me today, again, wherever we are, and for a world in such great need. Right, while we were still in our sins, Christ died for us. And we need that because all of us have sinned and fall short of God's glory. These are all Bible quotations, by the way. It's God's will that all people be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Did you hear that? It's God's will that all people be saved, that the two become one, Gentiles and Jews, that all people on planet Earth come to a knowledge of who God is by looking at Jesus and understand that we can come back into a fully reconciled relationship with God, have peace with God, and thus by the, by the Holy Spirit be empowered to live at peace with everyone else in this world. 
God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And from Jesus himself, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I mean, maybe these are are new claims to you. I I don't know. I, I know many of you very well, so I know they're not new claims to you. But it's good news for us this day, no matter where we're at, no matter how we're feeling this day. Again, the new covenant is new because God doesn't just keep his end of the deal and expect us to try super hard to be perfect people to keep our end of the deal. In that sense, the law has been set aside, right? And the new covenant, what we celebrate at the Lord's table every time we come, the new covenant is that in Christ, God came down to our side And by living a perfect life and dying on the cross and being raised from the dead, he kept our end of the deal for us. So the new covenant is that God keeps his end of the deal and in Jesus, God keeps our end of the deal for us. And like I'm fond of saying, that's a good deal. And I don't mean that in a silly way. This this is why the gospel is good news. God has done for us what we could never do on our own. And, and because of that, because God has obeyed perfectly, uh, we, we can come before God with this tremendous sense of freedom, uh, or, or as one of my favorite pastors, Tim Keller, writes, we come before God with the perfectly validating performance record of Jesus. So that when, when we pray to God, what dominates your thoughts does not have to be all the ways you've messed up and screwed up. Yeah, I've got that too. Don't worry. What can dominate your thoughts is in his tremendous goodness, God has fulfilled the law perfectly on my behalf. And as I come to God, God views me like he viewed Jesus when he was here. The freedom, the tremendous freedom of the children of God. This is good news for all people everywhere. And followers of Jesus are called to speak this good news truthfully to the world. There's no greater use of the gift of speech than to bear witness to the reality of what God has done for us in the person of Jesus. So to conclude today, look at this Psalm, Psalm 15. Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may live on your holy mountain? Those whose walk is blameless And remember, not because we're trying hard or striving more, but because of what Christ has done for us. Christ's blamelessness is ours. Those whose walk is blameless, who do what is righteous, who speak the truth from their hearts, who have no slander on their tongues, who do their neighbors no wrong, who cast no slur on others. Again, Jesus has done all of this perfectly on our behalf. Our work, the work of our lives, is to cooperate with the Holy Spirit working within us so that we become more and more the people we have been declared to be in Jesus. That's an amazing way to view your life. You've been declared, if you're in Christ and have trusted him now, that's what you need to do. You've been declared blameless and righteous, perfect in every way before God. So in court and everywhere else, we avoid lying and using words to harm others 
Instead, we use words to bless and build up others, to encourage and cheer on, to reassure and compliment, to show concern for them as people with their own hopes and dreams and struggles and hurts. And we speak truthfully of God to this world in such great need, acknowledging and proclaiming the life that Jesus has made possible to us and to everyone on planet Earth through his life, death, and resurrection. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Pray with me, would you? God, we bless you and thank you that you have spoken on our behalf the ultimate word, Jesus. You spoke that word to reclaim us, to give us life, to draw us back to yourself. So God, help us. Help us receive everything that you've offered us in Christ. And by your spirit, help us cooperate with what you're doing in our life and not resist that. For we know that you have our best interest in mind. And Father, if there be anyone here kind of considering or wondering about uh, the Christian faith or what it is that you've said, the kind of the basic message that you shared when you were here, Lord, I, I pray that you would pour out your spirit in some new, fresh way to make clear uh, the goodness and grace and life that you're offering us. God, help us with any barrier that might uh, seem to be before us and, and help all of us turn to you. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen.